What is your favorite thing about being sober? Um, the right now. <laughs> yeah. That makes me like emotional. I know, I'm gonna cry. Just, just the right now. The, the, the best thing about get being sober is that I can now experience the full range of emotions. I remember all of it. It is like a beautiful, beautiful place to be. I can't believe I'm sharing this in like a podcast form, but whatever this is, what it's for. <laughs> I wish that I could just knock myself out through however long it would take for my body to regulate from getting sober. I was so afraid of being uncomfortable from the withdrawals and all the things. I Googled if I could, if that existed. Like a place to go, I can't make it up. If anyone could have seen my Google history at that time, they would have come me, no doubt. It's like that Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing at each other. Yeah. Like I'm the one. I'm the one beating me up on my expectations that are absolutely like impossible to achieve. When you pull up the face mask and you're like, oh shit, it's me. Like I am closer to my authentic self. And I think today the way I meet that is with a ton of curiosity. Like I'm still learning about who I am. I'm still learning about what really gets me excited. And I'm also learning that I can change my fucking mind, which is like. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, a leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, these stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. These episodes may contain adult language and subject matter that's not appropriate for all audiences. Also, we are not doctors or psychiatrists, so what we share on these episodes is certainly not to be considered medical or psychological advice, just our own personal experiences, which we hope will be helpful to others on a similar quest. So that's it, and thanks for listening. All right. Uh, Hey, Sober Family and our entire listener community. I am over the moon about today's guest. She is a great friend, fellow woman in recovery and all around just badass and a successful um, person, human being, friend, uh, also a customer success, customer experience manager person uh, in her work life. Her name is Alexis, and we met years ago at the at an Austin uh, Austin women's meeting. 
that we both frequented. And I remember when I first met her thinking like this girl is serious about recovery. Like she's not fucking around, you know? Um, and she sure was, and she still is. And she's been through a lot of really hard things in recovery, um, and emerged, you know, stronger through every single one of them with her head held high. And she's also just a very supportive person to those in her life. And I love that about her. I also really appreciate how honest and direct she is because that's kind of my bag as well. So I always appreciate that when I see that in women. So without further ado, Alexis, welcome to the show. Oh, I am so honored to be here. Um, yeah, still a little surreal. Thank you so much for the kind words. I don't even know how to follow up with that. I miss you so much. I miss you too. I miss you too. I used to see you three days a week at least, like for years. And I then know. COVID happened and groups went separate ways and things. But, you know, we've kind of stayed in touch here and there. And I think about you all the time. I was just talking to you about this. Like you, some people just stick with you, like in your soul space. And when I'm freaking out, which I tend to do a lot because I'm just kind of a high strung person, I remember you always talked about the shoulder drop. Mm. I just remember you were like, there's that shoulder drop, that moment of like where you're just like, hold on a second, you know, and that because I get, I can just get so frazzled, even in recovery, using my tools, working my program, like it's still just, that's the first place I go. And I have always remembered that, that shoulder drop. So thank you for that. You just got engaged. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. That's like a surreal moment in itself. But yes, thank you. We're we're really excited. Yeah. That is incredible. I'm so happy for you. Well, let's start with an icebreaker. Um, If your life had a theme song, what, what would it be and why? Well, you know, my original answer to this question was a little bit more of a silly one, which is hot girl shit by Megan the stallion. Because <laughs> that is, that is like my alter ego personality that sometimes I have to put on in my head to do hot girl shit. Um, but I think, I think, um, I have, I don't know, man, I think that would probably have to be my day-to-day like confidence theme song. If I had to have a life theme song, um, it would probably be uh, the Bill Withers song. I think that's probably one of my favorites. Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on it right now. Better day, good day. Anyway. I think it's um, lovely day. Lovely day. Because Alt-J redid it. And I when Alt-J did it, I was like, this song is so amazing. And then I found out it was not original to Alt-J. It was Bill Withers from back in the day. And I was like, it's such a beautiful, It. I think that's what it is. Incredible. Yes. Lovely Day by Bill Withers would probably have to be my life theme song, I think. I love that song so much. I do, I do too. It sets that's me beautiful. up. It's like the first song on my playlist almost every morning. It's like that's beautiful. Morning. So... I know a lot of your story because I knew you from the rooms and, but I also, we were friends outside of the room. So I, I know a lot about, you know, your story and your experience, but can you kind of take us back through, um, what it was like for you when you were in active addiction? Oh man. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting because my perspective on that time has changed so much, even, since I first came in. And I think that's, what's so powerful about my relationship with you is like, you met me 
day four, girl. <laughs> like nice you were surprise. really, yeah, yeah. You were really sitting in there from the beginning. Um, yeah. Active addiction to me was like experiencing what hell on earth must feel like. I, you know, don't necessarily associate myself with specific religions. I think I've picked up a lot of things along the way. Like AA was really my spiritual uh, gateway drug, <laughs> um, introducing me to like all yeah. of these other concepts. And, yeah. um, but one concept, I see, so I don't know how I feel about heaven and how like for everybody at the end or whatever, but I do believe that you can make both of those things for yourself, like in this reality in life. And I believe that active addiction is what hell would be described like, which is just pure insanity. I mean, it's surreal now because I still feel like it was a different body in a different life, but the best way I think to describe it would be, living in constant fear of nothing and everything all at the same time Mm. and having a towards the end of my addiction too was just a full-time job at maintaining shitty like it wasn't to get high anymore. It wasn't to enjoy myself because there were times when I was using drugs and alcohol that was like such a blast. <laughs> so much fun. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and the last handful of years of my both using and drinking, because I have such a story that's centered around harm reduction, it was no longer to have a good time. I was doing extreme things in order to just keep this baseline level of horrible. (laughs) And my life was just duct taped together. And I think that's one of the things that being a high functioning everything, (laughs) like a lot of people in my life weren't privy to what was going on behind the painting of like, I had a job and I had a car and I had a home. And there were a lot of things on the outside that really, if you looked in the back end of that, it was all duct taped together. Um, And feeling like you're living in that kind of secret from everyone all the time is soul crushing, like total soul crushing. It was hopeless and just very, very dark. And I think I look back at it now and it's like, God, so many of those tools ended up actually saving my life, like keeping me from the present. If I would have been clear and seeing how horrible all of that was, I might not have made it. So like, yeah, I have a very, so when people would say, oh, I'm like so grateful to be in recovery. Like that concept was so far for me when I first came in here of like, I'm not grateful for this experience right now. (laughs) Now I look back and I have gratitude even for the like, I'm so glad I had, even if they were malfunctioning tools, I had some sort of survival mechanism that kept me from being able to see how really horrible things were at that time. Cause I'm not sure I would have really made it out on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful. It's such a powerful picture. You just painted of what it feels like. And you're stuck in this merry-go-round tornado situation and you're just maintaining like bottom of the barrel. It's it's like not even 
people think, oh, like you were partying your ass off and having a blast. Well, yeah, for a while. And then uh, and then the alternative, I guess, without that number or escape or whatever is, is, you know, harm, self-harm or, you know, or suicide or like other things. And a lot of us don't make it. A lot of us don't survive long enough. And so there's, you know, that, that understanding of when you said that you almost feel like that. I, when I look back at my time too, that's what I feel like it was a different person, different person, a different life, a different realm. Like how could that even be? Um, but I've had sponsors and other women and many people tell me, you know, and I believe it now it took me a long, long time, but to like, don't have shame in that. Don't have regret in it. Don't, we don't wish to shut the past, you know, shut the door on the past because we did what we needed to do at the time to survive. And we got to where we could find a solution and we could heal. And and now we make different choices. But um, I used to be like, oh, I wasted all that time. I hurt all these people. I was such a piece of shit. And I just don't talk to myself like that anymore. It's like, no, that's for whatever reason, that was my path and it was necessary. And, you know, so when you say that, just like, oh, huge, huge. I agree. I, I honor that. I honor that version of myself now. You know, we have roundtable discussions where a lot of different versions of myself are present. And <laughs> um, I quit. I quit not inviting that version of Alexis to the table yeah. a couple of years ago. And that's a lot of therapy too. I mean, yes. there's like that's part of the gateway stuff, right? Like that's other tools that I've used in order to be able to get there. But I, I totally agree. It's like yeah. the necessary the 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 dirty necessary things that had to happen in order yes. to get here I'm like I don't regret one second of any of it and same for me with the therapy and everything of instead of pushing that away or shaming that person or or exiling that version of myself to invite her in to hug her to love on her to tell her that she because it never was from a place of malice it was a place from a place of wounding and confusion and not knowing how else to handle it and I always think of Rumi's um, poem, The Guest House, and it talks about that. Like, even if sorrows and just that poem talks about the shit that shows up at your door, you know, invite it in, ask it questions, be curious, like befriend those versions of yourself. And even people who did you wrong or or traumatic things that happened and, and stuff like that. Like, that's just, and for me, my tool was to just avoid it. Never happened. Uh, I don't want this side of myself to come up or if I start having, you know, old addictive tapes run in my head, I used to shame myself. What's wrong with you? You're not working a good program. Like, and now it's just like, no, what's going on there? Like that version of myself is trying to tell me something. So that's really powerful that you share that because this is like master's degree recovery level, (laughs) (laughs) you know? where you stop being so mean to yourself about it. And you're just like, everything has a purpose. Everything has a message to it. If we're willing to, to look at it, had you, had you tried to get sober and clean before coming to AA or. So I had my first sobriety date. I have a couple of them that I love to honor. Yes. Um, but my first big uh, decision, I used to say I was clean, not sober. I quit doing all of the like really obvious, horrible opiates <laughs> back in 2014. And yeah. um, 
you know, I had tried everything, everything a million times to get clean. I mean, my ability to, to practice like full abstinence-based recovery is only because I knew that if I could do that, if I could quit doing all of the stuff that I really loved, that my body was heavily addicted to, I could do anything. I wasn't happy about it, but it did give me some (laughs) of the evidence to start believing that it was possible. So I tried to kick, I had tried to kick every way to Sunday. So many times I couldn't even tell you. Um, I ended up being successful through medically assisted treatment. So I was on Suboxone for about two years and I had an incredible doctor in San Antonio who made it really clear, like, this is not a maintenance program. I will taper you every month that you come in. And I was regularly drug tested and I went through a pretty rigorous program with him. And he was also the first doctor that was very clear with me of like, I can help you with the physical symptoms, but you have a spiritual and a mental disease that you need to address. Wow. And so like (laughs) he originally, I'm pretty sure he was like, go to church and get a therapist, (laughs) which I didn't, I didn't take that advice at that time. You're Um, like, eh. I'm like, oh, that's where we stop. Actually, I just asked yeah. for the physical help. Like, thanks so much. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I went on drinking. So I went on doing drugs that I hated. Um, I like started doing uppers, and I hated uppers. I was like, never in my bag. And then I just became an incredible alcoholic overnight. Yeah. Like, it. I, I I can't even describe. I mean, the week before I walked into the rooms. I was finishing a bottle of tequila about every night by myself. And um, I hadn't tried to stop drinking. Um, Honestly, my last night drinking didn't have anything different really happen to me other than one of my brothers basically told me like, I can't, he came into Austin to come and see me that night and we were going to go to a music festival and, He was like, we can't stay with you because you are not like, this is not acceptable. Like, this is insane. And he had never said anything to me before. And that wasn't really like, in my opinion at the time, the, (laughs) the rules of engagement of our relationship. I was like, yeah. Um, So whenever he finally told me that, I, I think, um, that night I drank myself into oblivion just from the amount of shame. And I think it was the first time that anybody that I loved so much had ever told me like, this is not normal. And so I ended up staying sober out of shame for a few days. Yeah. Um, before coming into the rooms. And then I also saw a friend of mine in a halfway house and she was sober and her and I were running buddies together. And I was like, there is something really serious about yourself. You need to check when you're like jealous of someone in a halfway house. <laughs> like, you're like, Not yeah. jealous, but I was like, oh man, I saw this person. I was like, damn, this setup actually looks like she just got out of prison and she was doing, she was way more happy, joyous and free than I was at that moment. And I had yeah. all my freedom. And so- isn't that crazy? I had a couple of, yeah, I had a couple of universe things that happened, but no, I, I hadn't tried at least out loud or with another person to get fully sober um, until I had come into the rooms. 
What What do you think has been the hardest part of like making this change for you? Because a lot of people will say, you know, your social life changed or, I, you know, there's a million different reasons why we did what we did. And I always am curious, like what, what people struggle with, struggled or still struggle with the most. What's really incredible, I'm like a, a level of stubborn that's on another world. So for <laughs> me, when I came in, I knew I was done. I didn't have a really big, stri- like, I didn't have trouble identifying. I didn't have trouble knowing, like, calling myself an alcoholic, knowing that there was a problem. Like, all of that was... Yeah. And I don't know if that's a God thing. That has to be a God thing, actually, because normally that's the kind of shit that I would rationalize over and over again as to something to keep me away from a program like um, like a 12-step program. But I think what was the hardest for me was, and also the most impactful, was the pause. Like, I have lived my entire life drinking, drugs, men, money, careers, anger, sadness, whatever. I lived in a reactionary state. I have never understood what it meant to pause, to respond. And you take away, you know, when I came in and they're like, drinking's the tip of the iceberg. I was like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? Like, that's all It's all I thought I was here for. And what now I understand they're talking about is all of the what's what's been the hardest for me, I think, is 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 learning that the pause is life work. Yeah. And also um, I every once in a while and I still do it to this day, I play with this this narrative of like oh, I have to do all of these things to like be normal and other people don't have to like do all of this introspection and therapy and look at all this shit I have to do just to like wake up and want to be here. And it's like, that's not the truth. I overwhelm myself and everything. I do everything 110%. And so type A, 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 A plus. That's what I'm looking for all the time. A plus. And so like that has also been one of the tougher things I think as I start to enter this journey of like, you know, having longer term sobriety is just like, it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. And so learning how to pause in the beginning, I think was my biggest challenge. And now my biggest challenge is the pursuit of balance, just like understanding what is the right amount of gently challenging myself to stay out of my comfort zone and continue to do the work and stay in the middle without, you know, pulling out the whips and chains and forcing things uh, in a manner that isn't sustainable or healthy for me anymore. Um, huge. So yeah, I think, I think those are the biggest, those are the biggest themes that have challenged yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. We, I mean, I just, I relate, I've always related to you so much cause our, I feel like we're so similar in so many ways, but, um, when people would say when I first started coming in and I would hear phrases like pause when agitated, I was just like, who pauses when they're agitated? Like, well, how do you even do that? What does that mean? Because we, I come from a family where, you know, it's like a, like a powder keg, you know, and we, 
we basically had one feeling, which was anger. And like, that was the one emotion that I think we, we knew how to express and it was acceptable to express, but like sadness, fear, regret, you hurt my feelings. Like none of that was ever, that wasn't really a thing. It just always kind of came out in anger. So I was kind of like, sometimes even looking for somebody to piss me off. Like I've, yeah, yeah, I wish you would. I can't wait for that conversation to happen. (laughs) And so it took me a long time to understand what that even means. And then you, like you said, it's just, this is just the tip of the iceberg. When I realized that I had no way of emotion, emotionally regulating, I had no tools. I had no coping skills. Like I was a workhorse. I could get stuff done and I could handle my business, but I couldn't feel things. And even now I'm coming up, I'll have 10 years next month. And I, I, um, there will be days where I will successfully pause when agitated and handle a situation very well. And the very next day I will fuck it up so much. And then I go make amends and, you know, clean up my mess and everything like that. So like you say, this is life work. It's, and it, it, it is very much contingent upon my spiritual fitness that day, depending on, you know, um, whatever. So it's, it's just huge that you say that because I think a lot of us have this fantasy like I'm going to get sober and then, you know, after two or three years, I'll just kind of like, you know, act like a regular person or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's exactly what I was looking for. And you know what? One thing um, my sponsor current, my current sponsor tells me all the time, which the first time she told it to me, I was like struck. I didn't even know what to say. No action is an action. Because a lot of times when I would call her to this pause, like I'm calling to pause, right? Yeah. There's this thing and I want to do something about it. That's who I am at my core. Everything is about, I'm the doer. I'm the performer. I'm the like get shit doneer. Like let's go. Like let's fix this shit. And so a lot of my reactionary stuff usually comes from, you know, the dysregulation anger too was like such a powerful, cool emotion. Like learning about all the things that were under that was like mind boggling when I came into the program and just started to experience emotional sobriety, which is a whole nother situation. Whole other thing. Um, But no action is an action. And I, I live by that now, which is like, in, in, in order to keep myself from like, Oh, I have to do something about this situation right now. It's like, or the thing to do is not do. And maybe I can bring some other parts of the universe or God into this. That'd be kind of cool. And then see where it goes. And it's like for, for an action oriented person like myself, no action being an action changed the game for me. That's That's been a reason. That is just like, that is powerful, you know, because it's very, it's counterintuitive to how we're wired. It's counterintuitive to how society kind of, you know, conditions us. And I think I never want to be a victim. And so I was always like, I'm going to do it. I'll take care of it. I'll handle it. I'll fix it. And then I would just make the mess bigger. And, and my, my sponsor to this day, keeps mentioning the word balance. I keep telling her I've never heard of it. You know, I don't like, (laughs) what? that's just so stupid. What do you even mean? Um, But the other thing is, this ability to sit on it, right? Like type up the email, go write it in your journal, put it in your nightly and just sit on it for a couple of days. And the patience and the humility and the surrender that's required to do that is just like, you just want to like 
But over time, if you practice it and sit still in meditation and just feel super uncomfortable, forcing yourself to sit still when you want to fix it or call this or send that email or do whatever it is that, you know, um, but over time you, what I realized is that if I will stay out of the situation, it tends to work out a lot better. Um, (laughs) and then a week later, if something still needs to be addressed, then I can, I can calmly, in a more rested emotional state, I can calmly go revisit that with that person or that situation or whatever, you know? Um, but I totally not doing anything is doing something like that's I just love sponsor advice I'm just like where did they- <laughs> it's amazing Damn okay. it. again yeah I know so I remember and I hope this is okay to bring up I know I know you've you've looked over this so you would have told me if you didn't want me to talk about it but like you have have had I don't know if you still do but you have had a lot of health issues in your life and yes. I remember in the rooms Um, when you were going through different things with that. And a lot of us, when we get sober and we start getting emotionally sober, we start hydrating, sleeping, eating clean, exercising, whatever, we start trying to have this healthier life. A lot of things just kind of get amazing. You just feel good and and all this. But when you have chronic health issues, you're still having to do all the work, but you may not get all of that relief in terms of feeling good all the time or whatever. So can you kind of talk about how your health challenges, you know, made it hard for you in recovery and also maybe how they've improved over time when you started taking better care of your body, just kind of that whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm like such a fun, I mean, chicken or the egg, I have a genetic disease that's around my pancreas that um, makes it really hard to drink alcohol, (laughs) but I did it anyway. And, um, I, you know, I started getting pancreatitis when I was 15 and a lot of us good alcoholics don't get that until they're like a little closer to the end. Yeah. Um, so I, I started having, you know, some really serious, um, health complications and, hospital stays and all of that at a really young age. And honestly, that's what introduced opiates into my life at, you know, 17, 18, I was prescribed this crazy amount of medication during the time when less was known about a lot of that stuff. But, um, um, so anyway, I share that to say, you know, when I quit drinking, I did get some pretty immediately relief from like the day to day symptoms of having chronic pancreatitis all the time. Yeah. Um, but what I was left with was a lot of scar tissue and I also ended up getting diagnosed with type one diabetes, which required insulin pumps and a lot of, you know, you're like, you're basically trying not to consume alcohol every day. And then you have to like call an insurance company. It's just not a good time. <laughs> so like, was very annoying. Wasn't, wasn't awesome. But you know, I, I learned so many tools, um, from, applying the 12 steps, honestly, to a lot of the medical conditions that I was going through and, um, some of the more serious ones, which, you know, require some proactive surgeries and, you know, things that, um, I really, at that time was having, you know, I was just having a hard enough time facing life on life's terms, let alone some of the tough stuff. And I think, in early sobriety, you know, in my first year of sobriety, I just had some medical things come up that like, 
I, I had been ignoring for a long time because I was ignoring the world, putting my head in the sand, drinking myself to death. And when I finally decided to reemerge to the world, like, okay, I have to start taking care of myself and this is going to be the biggest part. And I just got some information that scared the shit out of me, you know? And, um, what's crazy is that, you know, I get tested for pancreatic cancer twice a year. I continue to do the next right thing. I mean, has my genetic condition improved? No, not really. But what has improved is me and my ability to navigate systems that are not always set up to be the most um, compassionate. Yeah. And I have also, you know, been able to, by bringing in so many other activities like the gym, like uh, meditation, like, you know, some of the other like uh, spiritual adjacent things that I've done, I've really been able to put my mind in a place where I can better regulate my own, my own body. Like I can control what's in my hula hoop and everything outside of that. I just put one foot in front of the other. Um, and it's terrifying. I mean, every six months I play with my mortality and I have a hard time going to my circles and my members of people and asking for help. And every six months I have, I either have one of two narratives around that. Every six months, I have an opportunity to practice everything that I have been learning. It's like, I've been in the gym training for this thing. And every six months, I have a chance at practicing all the things that I've learned. Yeah. Or the other thing, the other narrative that comes up is like, somebody, um, somebody recently told me shame is should have already mastered everything. (laughs) I'll get a lot of shame around not mastering this biopsy, this test, this look in the eye at my life and what I'm doing. Like it totally, it'll, it takes me to my knees and I pop up a few days later and everything, you know, God willing, thank God, everything so far, every biopsy I've got has been clear and I have incredible care and great doctors and all of those things. But it's just, it's interesting I've now learned the tools to be able to observe myself in both of those circumstances and just have a lot of compassion for both. Like it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. It's a really fun groundhog day. And also every time those, um, those biopsies come up or the MRIs come up or whatever, I also like, dude, I do a really cool inventory of my life. I'm like, is this even bringing me joy? Because I could be dead. Like I just, it's really morbid and it's really dark. And also sometimes it feels really healthy because it just gives me this tolerance of like, dude, if this isn't bringing me joy anymore, bye. You know, like if this doesn't bring me energy and it's, it's, that's my, that's today's outlook being glass half full. And also my last biopsy was like a month ago and everything was fine. So I'm like, (laughs) now, but, um, you know, and it's, it's been one of those things that I'm so grateful for the community of women that I have gutted myself in front of because they have like metaphorically and literally picked me up off the floor and put me back together, you yeah. know? So it's, um, it, it, it's been quite a journey. And it's also one of those things, of course, I have sponsees that have chronic illness. Yeah. 
That's never a coincidence to me. I was in a meeting last night with, with a woman who has terminal cancer and like, that's not a coincidence to me. Like I really believe that every single piece of guidance that I need and also what I'm meant to do in order to be of service to somebody else is put right in front of me exactly when the time is right. You know? Yes. It's that's, I mean, you're so strong and you've been through so much and you always in meetings and with your shares, you always were honest and you tried to be glass half full but sometimes you were having a rough time and you were also honest about that. And to me, that is what recovery looks like. Um, I just, because I did something well one time doesn't mean that's how I'm going to handle it the next time. And when you're talking about observing yourself going down these two different paths or, or narratives, it's like, that's just human nature, you know? And it's that shame acronym is, is unbelievable. But I just remember thinking you were going through all of these things and you were working so hard and you couldn't have, you weren't in charge of how the genetic stuff was going to respond. So even if you were making the best choices possible, you know, you stood, that still was not in your control and like how frustrating that might be. But all the things that were in your control, you were working really hard to make, you know, choices that were good for you, good for your body. Um, but I also love this message that you have of compassion for yourself and curiosity and like just sitting with it for a few days and letting it be what it is. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to change it. Don't try to make it go away. Just like let it breathe. Sometimes that is the thing we need to do. And that's not what any of us want to hear. We want to feel better immediately. I want a quick fix. I want this to go away, blah, 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 which is kind of what got us into our addictive patterns probably in the first place, because it's easier to just not, you know? And, but I remember just observing you, I was watching you like over months and years. And it's like, you've experienced it now, no doubt where it's just the trippiest experience to like watch a woman grow into herself. And then she just, you know, she comes in all crumpled and crying. And then, then over the months and years, she just walks in like a fucking, you know, and it's like, that's what it's all about right there. You know? Yes. 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 I totally agree. I and totally to to, agree. To get to be part of that, to get to be one of the people on that woman's path that are, that can be helpful, you know? And then like you say, my sponsees help me more than I've ever helped them because I'll be giving them advice that I don't take for myself. Um, and I'll be like, Oh, I think I needed to hear that today. <laughs> you know? Yes. hundred um, percent. Well, what's, what's the hardest thing you've gone through since you've been sober? Losing and a sponsor. Huh? Yeah. Losing a Losing sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? I'll actually expand that. Cause it wasn't even just that. It's just watching others not get it. Yeah. Never, never, ever, ever gets easier. Like, um, it's brought me into other 12 step programs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I could see that. I, I, um, early in the pandemic, you know, especially in recovery circles, like there are a lot of people that so dependent on the community and, um, you know, being in person. And there were so many things that were turned upside down routines and relationships. Like, 
Yeah. People you're used to seeing, you know, three, four times a week. And now you're on these squares and you're in this corner of your house. And I had, she was actually a former sponsee. She was now working with somebody else, but we had still remained really close. And it was a healthy transfer of sponsorship where like we had worked the steps and she had found, um, uh, a religious denomination that really spoke to her and wanted to work with a sponsor that was really emphatic in that, in that religion. And I supported it yeah. wholeheartedly. And so yeah. we were like, we were kind of transitioning from being sponsor sponsee to friends. And I saw her, you know, about a week and a half before she passed. And, um, none of us knew at that time, whether or not it was through a relapse. And we found out later that she had taken her own life. And I think, that was such a defining moment for my sobriety because I had been working, you know, I had worked with her and I just knew like, there's just something to be said about like sobriety is not gained by wanting it really bad. No. And she really wanted it, like really wanted it. And Um, it also was a lesson in like alcohol really is the tip of the iceberg drugs is just the tip of the iceberg. Like that, that, that phone, you know, that, that typical, um, 12 step thing about it's in between the ears. Like I think I had understood that maybe from like a logical perspective, but really feeling that in your bones of like, oh man, like this goes so beyond that. Um, it took me out for a second. I mean, I mean like, and by that, I just mean leveled me down on the floor. And I was basically like, I'm never going to sponsor again. <laughs> I don't want to go to another me. Like, why do we do this? Yeah. Why do I question it? I questioned everything. And yeah. I also have my youngest brother, um, who got sober six weeks after me. Nice. And then he ended up relapsing at about his 18 month mark. And then he was out there for the most seven grueling months of my entire life. And now he's got a three going on four years of sobriety in next April. And so just that whole, like one of the hardest things I've had to do is go to funerals and also um, learn how to hold space and not try to fix and control the ones that are on, you know, giving people the dignity of their own journey is yeah. like the toughest shit I've ever had to do. Yeah. Especially when it comes to a disease that I know so um, intimately is life or death at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. It's just, it's it, that, that was one of the moment throughout all the health stuff and, all the relationship stuff and all the family shit and all all that stuff. I still think there is something about being in recovery and seeing people that lose the battle to that, whether that's through mental illness or a relapse or, you know, um, overdoses or whatever that looks like, you know? Yeah. And I, unfortunately it is part of, it is part of it. And I, none of us can get out. I mean, I don't, I think the statistics on long-term sobriety, I've read 14% before, but I think long, long-term sobriety is more like six or 7%. Like the, the, the chances of, of winning 
against this thing one day at a time are so fucking low that I remember the first few sponsees I had when they would go back out. I was, I was so distraught. I thought I had failed them. I was telling my sponsor, like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Can you help me? And she was like, this is, you're just the vessel. And I, you know, I would chase and I would want to help and save and all this. And it's like, I can't, I can't do that. Right. I couldn't be helped until I was fully ready. And this is, this is one of my big hangups with religion or when people say, you know, God saved me or this or that, because I just, it's so arbitrary. It all feels so arbitrary. I don't deserve to be alive more than women. I know that have lost their lives to this thing. So like, I, I have a really hard time with that. I don't think I got saved because that would imply that I have more value or worth. And I absolutely don't believe that. So I struggle a lot with that. Why do some of us get to, to make it? And some of us don't, especially the ones who want it so bad and they're trying so hard. And then you watch them die and it's hard to not feel like you could have done more or you should have done more or, well, where was God for that person? You know, this, this kind of like dark, place of like, what's the point, you know, and I've gotten to that place before from watching other people die or, you know, attempt suicide repeatedly, or just all these different things that people are dealing with. And it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really, it's hard to know where not to step over because my sponsor is always like, when you stop wanting to be helpful and start wanting to control that's where we have to just, you have to remove yourself from the situation. And I said, even if the control comes from a good place, like I want to control her decisions to help her, to, to, to rescue her from herself type of thing. Well, that's me yeah. God, right? Like I'm not, I don't have that kind of power. Um, that's right. But to sit there and watch someone on a war path, um, when that's absolutely not what they want and knowing that that could have been me too, or any of us. And I think that's the hard part is, you know, um, and I'm sorry that happened to you and to her or her and just, you know what the other side, the flip side of that story today is that I was going to a very small, very intimate, like rogue women's group at the time. And I am still so close with all those women. It banded us together in a way that nothing ever could Yeah, that meeting has taken off into its own world now and its own life. And it grew legs and it's walking around. It's like <laughs> so crazy. And a lot of us stuck around. I mean, it brought us together in a way that like only she could have. Yeah. And that is also, you know, to your point of like figuring out like those that make it and don't, I, I just, I got stuck in that loop and, I finally, you know, when I share about this or whenever I share my story, it's like I've stopped trying to figure that out. And um, on most good days, I I don't take thought off the shelf. And also, like, it has that attraction promotion shit. I mean, that that reason to keep going and doing what I can do and knowing, like, the best way to honor this person is for me to continue doing this work and sharing her name and talking about it. And, yes. and that's, that's what gave me some sort of resolve through that time. And it really has been a beautiful, I mean, I have art of her over my house and 
she's on my ofrenda back there. And she, you know, like I, she is an active part of our lives still. And I think that she's actually bonded a lot of us together. And um, so there's a lot of beautiful stuff that can come from it, even though it is gut wrenching work. And to your point, reveals a lot of fears that I had about myself, right. And the program and sobriety and, and all the things. So it, it was, um, the hardest thing that I've gone through, but also easily one of the most rewarding experiences that I've been able to share and connect with other women in the rooms on. Um, yeah. And I love that, that you bring, of course, the glass half full, the silver lining in a, in a tragic situation. But, you know, that you we have to look at it that way or we would just be eternally depressed. But I mean, I think that people don't really understand unless you're in the fellowship for real, that this is not just a sponsor sponsee thing. Like we literally become family. We 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 go through divorces together. We lose parents together. We go through miscarriages together and just all the shit of life. We work through those things as a family. And so it isn't like, oh, so-and-so relapsed. No, it's like, it it feels a lot deeper than that. And for me, someone who didn't want to be vulnerable, who was afraid to get hurt, who never opened up because I had been hurt in my childhood and I wasn't about to sign myself up for that again. That part was very scary for me in the rooms to like let people get close to me, to love people so much, knowing that like they could, you know, go away. But that that is the risk. I mean- you know, what is, what is your, I mean, you've dropped so much wisdom today. So like, I don't even know if you have anything left, but like, what's your your number one go-to tool or advice for leaving an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or anything else that limits us? Like some people just, um, you know, or like, they'll say something really simple, like serenity prayer or, but what's your like, Oh shit handle when you're in a moment you know, um, whether it's a piece of advice or a tool that you use or a thing that you do, um, that's kind of saved your ass repeatedly. Um, the most recent, oh shit handle is the no action is an action because that has given me just enough buffer space to do something different. (laughs) just enough like girl like we're you know it's like just enough to be like okay I don't feel as whatever whatever I felt before that so I would say the no action is an action is probably my current oh shit handle yeah if I could talk to myself when I was first coming in I think that um one of the first and it sucks because it's like everywhere but I think like separate from one day at a time, it doesn't suck. It's just that it's one of those things that gets so cliche and you hear it so often that it loses its like value and its force behind it. Yeah. But I tell my sponsees, I'm like one hour at a time. Like I had days where I was calling a sponsor and this was in early sobriety and in continued sobriety. Like I don't know where to put my hands today. And it's like, brush your teeth and take a shower and call me back. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, next it's like, where's your closest meeting? Go there. Call me when you're done. Like one, I have spent all day and all weekend at a clubhouse. I have sat in the back and just cried. I mean, all I can say is like one hour at a time and just keep showing up. Like not perfectly, not all put together, not feeling great, doing good. Like, if you can just show up 
and let all of the stuff, all the magic happens in the background anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, I do, I do believe to a certain extent, of course, like we do, we get ourselves sober and we make decisions to start living healthier lifestyles. But there's also like this whole universe working in the background that you yeah. have no clue yeah. is already working for you. Like all you got to do is sit down yeah, one hour at a time. That's it. Um, and I think another thing that also, oh, this is a good one. The I can't remember what page it's on because I don't want to be that person either to even look it up. <laughs> um, it's a lot more uh, all roomy and inclusive. The hoop yes. that you're trying to jump through is not that small. Yeah. It's like, I think that one trait I have found from people in the recovery community, whether they're just curious or not, is that try to, this decision feels a lot bigger and harder and, and more complicated than it needs to be. And it's like, dude, just even in the beginning, it's like, try one less, you know, like there's no, I think the black and white thinking, man, it's just oh. like the hoop that you're trying, the hoop I'm trying to jump through is not that small. It's a lot bigger than I need it to be. And I have plenty of room to get through it. And I think that dismantles that creates a little bit of that shoulder drop moment for me of yes. like, okay, this is possible. You're like, yeah, because it's like what your brain is telling you about the situation and what is reality are generally speaking wildly different. And it's like, I love that part that you just referenced in the big book that talks about this. It's a lot bigger than you think it is, you know? And also it's not permanent. This decision, this relationship, this move, this job, like I always, it's always like kind of all or nothing. Like if I make this decision, like this is the end, this is forever. This is my life forever. And it's like all or nothing, black or white. And that's really just not, that's not, you know, what it is. And I think also, um, you said something about letting the universe just kind of play out and do what it needs to do. And somebody said one time it was a Ted talk or something, but they were like, just leave enough room for the magic, leave enough room for God, leave enough room for whatever it is that you believe in. Because I'm the type of person I want to control everything. I want to plan everything. I, want, I don't want any surprises. I want to know what's coming. I want to know what's going to happen. And that's, that was part of why I lived from a place of fear and I had to medicate my anxiety because I couldn't stand to know my powerlessness. I couldn't understand. I couldn't stand to not know things ahead of time. Um, and I didn't leave any room for the magic. There was no room for anything because I had everything planned out to a T to keep myself safe or I thought I could keep myself safe, but I couldn't because life happens and we're going to lose people we love and things are going to happen that are painful. Um, and then no amount of planning or fear or control can change that. But I, I didn't believe that I thought I could, I thought I could plan away from having life happen, you know? And, um, well, how have your, I know we're coming up on time, so we're going to, we're going to get it down to a couple more, but how have your relationships changed? Like with yourself, oh, wow. with yourself, first of all, and then just like other people, like your fiance, your family, friends, whoever, whatever. Yeah. So my relationship with myself is constantly changing. I yeah. think right now I'm really committing myself to this narrative, like creating a relationship with myself that is safe enough that I don't have to perform. 
Mm. One of the most humbling things that I have learned in this journey is that, you know, you come in, I came in hard victims, like all of these reasons that all of these people had made me this way. Right. Um, and I swung the pendulum all the way to the right. And I think I took a little bit too much credit and now I'm starting to fall into the middle where what I'm finding is that, you know, I have these narratives, like my relationship with my dad growing up was incredible. I was a daddy's girl until I wasn't. And, um, it got really hard there for about 10 years. And now my relationship with my dad is awesome, but I had all these narratives that it was like, Oh, I, I totally overperform because of the way my dad was growing up. I, I totally do all these things because of how my dad was. And while a lot of that still reigns true, my dad has done a lot of healing and a lot of work in order to improve himself. And he yeah. has said things to me that heal, that if it were only him would have healed that narrative, but yeah. it's not like, I'm the one, it's like that Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing at each other. Like I'm the one, I'm the one beating me up on my expectations that are absolutely like impossible to achieve. And when you pull up the face mask and you're like, oh shit, it's me. Like I am in pursuit of a more compassionate, gentle And not like just closer to my authentic self. And I think today the way I meet that is with a ton of curiosity. Like I'm still learning about who I am. I'm still learning about what really gets me excited. And I'm also learning that I can change my fucking mind, which is like, you know? Yeah. You're, you're not stuck in a decision. You can always change. I'm like, dude, you know what? What if I just like, I don't like those movies right now, but it doesn't mean it's so crazy. It sounds so ridiculous, but it's, it's such a simple concept, but it really has like permeated all the things. Yeah. And as far as I know, we're coming up on time. The only real relationship changes that I think I, I really would want to talk about today is out with my fiance because him and I started dating, um, when I had two months sober and Mm -hmm. Girl, I came in the room, so I was like, I met somebody. <laughs> and he's really oh. fine. I do not want to be his friend. Let me tell you right now. I do not want to be his friend. This You're is like, not platonic. I can't wait 10 more months to make this transition. So we're going to yeah. fucking no rules about first year. I love it. <laughs> Dude, it's a suggestion. But you know what? I wouldn't, I would not recommend it for, it's not for the lighthearted. I'll tell you that. Um, it opened up so much work with my sponsor. I had to talk about it constantly. And I did. I was incredibly uncomfortable so much of the first year. If he knew to this day, how absolutely wild I was in here, like, thank God we lived separate for the first two years of our relationship. He didn't which was know. no, thank God. All the work, I'd be like, no, 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 that's cool. Yeah, 100%. See you tomorrow. And then I would call fucking 20 women and be like, what is going? You know, like I, it was, it was um, crazy, crazy work. But I knew that he was somebody when I met him, there was something different about him. And I was willing to do the work on myself for myself in yeah. order to try and participate in a way that was healthy for the very first time. I have relationship experience of abuse and 
horrible, just horrible, horrible picker. And he was the first person that, of course, I meet once I make this commitment to myself to start this journey, that I was willing to do something different, not for him. It was for me, but I really wanted to give it a shot. Yeah. And I've just been so grateful also. Like there, I, I think one of the narratives I hate is like, I got sober and then I found the guy and it was, it's like, no girl, that is not how that shit happened. It is not a fairy tale all the time. We've had multiple conversations where I come to the table and I know that there is a chance that what I need, he might not be able to give me or vice versa. And I've had to have conversations with him knowing that we might have to walk away. And I still think that the practice of staying present in my romantic relationship and him letting me be who I need to be and me letting him do the same has been unreal. And it's the reason I think, you know, we're engaged today is like, he's, um, he's my person and I don't want to attach any, like, Oh, you know, I hope we ride off into the sunset and I hope I'm buried next to this fool. But if I'm not, we both know that we're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. like what anyway, so what a beautiful, I'm just so happy for you because you deserve it and you worked for it. But there's an old adage in the rooms about like, if you want to know what your character defects are, just get in a relationship. And that is no shit. It will pull up every, everything from your childhood, every insecurity, every ex you've ever had, like your own shitty relationship with yourself, your inner critic, like all of the things. And it's usually, I think that's why they suggest be careful that first year, because it really it can really dig up some bones that you may not be ready to fucking deal with. Right. Um, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I get why. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. I get why. Um, But but you did, you did the work. You had a partner there that was willing to sounds like do the work, his own work as well and and meet you where you were and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, true love is not going to wait on, you know, arbitrary suggestions in the rooms. I mean, you have to, you got to make it, you know, make it work, but it just makes me so happy to hear that and to also hear your continual messaging of compassion and curiosity. And like, you know, I love the words that you used earlier about right now too. Like, I don't like those movies right now because that's my thing is like, if I did something well and I handled something well and used my tools, well then in my mind, I'm healed. I'm healed. I know I'm better. I did it. I'm, I will never have a, a whatever again. And then a week later, I'm kind of like back to my old antics. And so I need to remember right now, you know, right now, this is going really well right now. This is going not well, but it's just this, like, everything is so temporary and so fleeting. Um, and I used to make decisions, permanent decisions based on things that were temporary. Um, yes. And that's, isn't the case anymore, you know, or if I'm feeling like that, I can talk to other women and be reminded, just, just hold on a second, you know, yep. drop your shoulders, yep. take a breath, sit it out. I'll be all right. You know? Um, and I think, you know, my, I would like to end on this question, um, which is what is your favorite thing about being sober? Um, the right now. <laughs> yeah. That makes me like emotional. I know. I'm going to cry. It's crazy. Sometimes I think, God, I spent a lot of energy trying to get out of the right now. And I have had so many moments where I've been like, 
I can't believe I wanted to numb out this. I could have missed this. And whether that's traveling or my nieces and nephews or just the slightest details and, and experiences that I've been able to have. And none of them that are all like overarching grand and, you know, dramatic the way I always would like them to be. Sometimes they're really cool. <laughs> I love a red carpet. You know, I really oh, love the fireworks. Moment. I love, I love it. And what is interesting, like, just, just the right now, the, the, the best thing about get being sober is that I can now experience the full range of emotions. I remember all of it. It is like a beautiful, beautiful place to be most days, <laughs> you know? And that's the cool thing about, that's what I love about it is like, you really want, you know, you really want a dynamic a dynamic life. I mean, Shakespeare, best of times, worst of times, girl, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's all of it. It's the duality of all of it. And so I think that just everything that I think that everything that I do in sobriety at the end of the day is to be the more authentic, like the truest version of myself yeah. and to be right here. Yeah, absolutely. And Shakespeare also said that expectations are the root of all heartache. And I, I think that in my addiction, my expectation was to never not feel great. I just wanted to feel good all the time. I didn't want to feel sad or scared or any of those feelings. And for a long time, drugs and alcohol helped me to selectively numb out the stuff I didn't want to feel. And then I could just feel euphoric and, you know, high and happy all the time or whatever. And then of course that, you know, doesn't work anymore, but it's like having the courage to just fully live the full spectrum of all the emotion, knowing that it's, there's a lot of, um, ebb and flow. And even when we would run away or numb in the past, they weren't going away. No, right. We were faking ourselves out thinking they went away because chemically maybe they did for a little bit, but like at the end of the day, that shit was all still going to be there. And I think at least now we get to move through it in real time. We're not, we're not postponing the inevitable. We're actually processing when things are coming up. You know, this is a real thought. One time I remember thinking to myself, I wish <laughs> I can't believe I'm sharing this in like a podcast form, but whatever this is what it's for. <laughs> I wish that I could just knock myself out like, like Michael Jackson style, just totally keep myself in the chamber. Yep through however long it would take for my body to regulate from getting sober. I was so afraid of being uncomfortable from the withdrawals and all the things. I Googled if I could, if that existed. Like a place to go. I can't make it up. If anyone could have seen my Google history at that time, they would have called me, no doubt. I was like, can I go anywhere that they can knock me out for a certain amount of time so that I just don't experience withdrawals? And it's like, that's a really great anecdote. That was my life. Yeah. Like, I just want to, I just, I don't, I just didn't want, I don't want to do that. I don't want to participate. And the level of insanity I took that to is like pretty crazy, like Googling if it's possible. Yeah. Um, And, and yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And to your point, knowing now that like all that did was bring it back tenfold. Yep. You know, um, that's all that that did. And so, um, I'm a little bit more of a low bottom case, I think than the average in certain aspects. And I wouldn't, I attest that to being extremely stubborn, but I also think 
that's exactly what um, I magnetize and the people that I end up being of service to yeah. are, are those people that, that those women and men um, I think that have, that have had a, a similar thought process, which I think isn't as like crazy or out of bounds as we might think it is. So yeah, no, it isn't. That's a very common thought. And I had the same thing of like, can I just be in a coma until I can feel normal again? Because those first three, six months where the withdrawals and the sleep and the the problems is going to sleep and the panic attacks and all the things that my body and mind needed to go through to heal. Um, it was, it was hellish and I didn't know if I could make it hour to hour. So when you said one hour at a time, that was, that was a real thing. And then eventually it started to level out, you know? Um, but I did want someone to put me in a coma um, and then pull me out when I was kind of regulated, you know? Well, I cannot tell you thank you enough. You're such a hero to me. I hope you're so proud of yourself. I'm so proud of you. I love you and I miss you. And I just thank you for doing this. I cannot wait to see you in 3D. I mean, yeah. what what a blast. I am so, so, so grateful to be here. And I'm so proud of you and everything that you've done with I Have 12 Questions and big fan of the pod and I can't wait to just continue to watch it grow. I love you so much. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you so much.